So we went up to the open air train car and it was a lot of fun. The leaves were in, in full bloom and there was more people than we would have liked there, but we went anyway and we had a good safe time. And uh, the train obviously um, went and we rode on the train and it was a great experience. And it made me think about what it means to be a tourist because I was doing a very touristy thing. And so as I was on this train, I was staying on the train and yet at every single moment, I was both leaving the place that I was looking at and going towards another place. I was leaving this waterfall as I was going towards this other cool waterfall thing that was on the train, as I was staying on the train. And sometimes in our lives we can get used to this thing where we're just kind of carried along by our circumstances. And we're kind of carried along by the things that happen to us, or we get pulled onto trains we never actually wanted to be on. Um, and we are kind of like thrust into this thing that uh, whether you want to stay or not, you're, you're going. Whether you want to go or not, you're still going. Um, but in our lives, and especially as Christians, we have choices to make about what we leave, where we stay, and where we go. And that's not to say that the sovereignty of God is not active in our lives or that God doesn't call us or pull us or even push us at times into different places within our walk, within our faith. But there is a lot of decisions we have to make every day, every week, every month, every year for ourselves and for our community and for our family. And so this idea of leaving or staying or going is kind of what we see in the text today. We're going to be in the book of Ruth, chapter 1. You can turn to the book of Ruth. I highly encourage you. We are not going to walk through the book of Ruth. These are going to be footnotes from a friend. What does uh, Ruth's name mean? Anybody? Friend. It means friend. So uh, I highly encourage you the next three weeks to be uh, reading through the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters to get the story. But we're just going to kind of camp out the next three weeks on a couple verses. Uh, and the reason that we're looking at the book of Ruth is because the last part of Cornerstone's mission statement is that we are to be a people that are creating and reframing the culture around us. That we are a people that are creating and reframing the culture around us. And uh, many people can react to the culture, especially Christians. Uh, Andy Crouch and, and other Christian leaders have talked about how it's easy to condemn the culture or to critique the culture or to copy the culture or to consume the culture. And sometimes those things are good and right to be doing, but what about actually creating culture? And then what also about reframing culture? And, and uh, this idea of creating culture means to create something new, to actually do something besides just reacting to the culture. And in the book of Ruth, we have this very um, almost odd story about this, this, uh, this woman and how in her choices as an individual, she helped to create and reframe the culture around us that ultimately led to blessing, uh, not just in her life, but in the lives of those that she loved, and also to the blessing of the world. Because I had uh, Terry McCumber this week find out uh, what Ruth was to Jesus. And so Ruth is, is uh, the great grandma times 27 to Jesus. Times 27, so I'm not going to say great 27 times, but to that, and in each of our lives, we have these things that were either chosen for us or that we chose for the next generations that help to form things. And so when we think about creating and reframing culture around us, especially during this time, I want you to think about how you can create and reframe the culture around you in your home, in your household, 
Not to say that the bigness of uh, how the church functions corporately or how we function as a community isn't important, but the thing that stuck out most last week when Tim Deering was, was talking about Reformation was this. He said that the most difficult part about getting the church to reform is actually that Christians themselves need Reformation in their own lives personally. And then he said something that really stabbed me in the side, <laughs> which was, we want Reformation for the wider church in order to make our own journey easier. And as a Christian leader, I had to hear that. Do I want this big reformation to happen within Cornerstone, within the church in, Le in Lebanon to make things easier or because it's going to honor God and glorify God more? Do I want that in my own life or do I want to kind of keep it at an arm's length where I want to create this culture and talk about this reframing of culture around us and yet I don't actually want to change myself. The idea of reframing is this idea of thinking about um, how can we ask a different question than the question that's being asked. So say for uh, any kind of churchgoer or church leader, like what is the measurements? What is the metrics of a healthy church? Well, if there's people in your seats, if there's money in the offering plate, and if people are getting wet and baptized, you probably have a healthy church. Those are some of the the, the the metrics, and I'm not saying those are all good or bad, but that tend to be around certain circles of Christian leadership. But now, now that we're in a season of pandemic, when some of those things are stripped back and stripped down, how do we reframe that question in hopefully a better way, where it's we listen to Jesus and how when Jesus said he was going to build his church, he also said that when a thousand or two thousand are gathered in my name, then I will be there. Except he didn't say that. He said that when two or three are gathered in my name, my presence will be there. And if my presence is there, there is authority to make spiritual, good, godly decisions that love the world and that glorify the God there in those small places. So maybe instead of thinking about how we can fill seats or how we can get the live stream to run perfectly, I'm rolling my eyes there because I've been working on it recently, or what we can do as far as getting more people to give to the church, what if we reframe the question and be like, well, how do we actually need to have people gather in small groups in the name of Jesus? And what does that mean to gather in the name of Jesus? Because you and I can get together and we can have good conversation and we can uh, get to know one another, but is there the welcoming? Is there the presence of Jesus that we're inviting into that place for him to instruct us? And so that's, that's a way of, that we can think about reframing the church. But culture starts at home. Culture starts in this place uh, of our households. And even if you don't have a family, even if you live alone, your practices and everything else that you do are really important to how uh, your life is formed and what God you are actually seeking. And so uh, the verse for today is from Ruth chapter 1. And what's going on in the story is that uh, Naomi and her husband, not, whenever I say Naomi right now, it's going to be not my wife. It's going to be very confusing for the next three weeks. Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. Naomi leaves Bethlehem with her husband and goes to the place of Moab. And the reason they go there is because there's a pandemic. There is uh, a lack, there's a famine. There is a lack of bread. There is a lack of food and sources there. So they go to Moab. And they have two sons. Uh, Naomi and her uh, husband have two sons. And they marry Moabite women. And then Naomi's husband dies in this foreign land. And then her boys die 
in this foreign land. And so it's her and Oprah. Uh, uh, I always want to say Oprah. It's not Oprah. Orpah. It's very difficult for me to get that right. Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi is, is like, you ladies need to leave. There is nothing, if I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, because I've heard that the, the Lord has given favor to Bethlehem and there's food now, we're going to go back to Bethlehem. You're not going to be welcomed there. And it would be better for you to leave me behind, to leave Naomi behind, and you, Ruth, and you, and you Orpah, would go and go back to your people. Go to the Moabites and live in your land. Just leave me alone. The Lord uh, has kind of cursed me or she feels like she's cursed. And the other thing is, is that in that day and time, they didn't have any protection because they also didn't have any children. And so Ruth possibly was barren. And in that day and age when a woman was barren, she had very little worth, unfortunately. And so for her as a foreigner to go back to Bethlehem, to Naomi's people, was not going to be good. And how would they survive there? So Naomi kind of, in her, in her hurt and in her tragedy, she's saying, go, leave me, leave me. There's a back and forth, they decide to stay, and then Naomi's again like, leave. It's going to be what's best for you to leave me behind. And so Orpah does end up leaving and going back to her people, to the Moabites. But Ruth does not. Ruth says, no, do not tell me to leave you. I am not going to leave you. In fact, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. And the cool thing about this idea of leaving and staying and going is that she's deciding not to be a tourist. She's deciding to take action and to think about where she should actually be. Where does her loyalty lie and where should she go? And it's really interesting because basically Naomi, the, the, the quote-unquote redemptive one, the one that's following the one true God, in the story is saying like, don't follow me. And, and she's complaining about Yahweh, about how Yahweh has brought upon this tragedy and everything else into her life. And so that's an interesting witness strategy. Rather than saying all the good things that God does for us, instead to be honest and vulnerable and be like, even in the midst of tragedy, I am still going to connect myself to the one true creator God that is Yahweh. Because connected to the one true creator God in the worst scenario is better than being connected to a false God in the best scenario. And so there is kind of this odd suffering glory that Naomi is giving to her people and to her God. And so they come back. They come back to Bethlehem. And the thing you need to know, the footnote for this story, is the fact that the Moabites were not well looked at by the Israelites. Um, in fact, in Deuteronomy, there's this whole section of scripture that talks about all the people that you're supposed to keep out of the assembly of God, out of the governing parts of the community. And while there was always this welcoming in of the foreigner and of the alien and of the stranger, there was also this thing where we didn't want pagan ways to infiltrate the, the house of the Lord. And so in one part it says, an Ammonite or a Moabite may not come into the assembly of Yahweh, even to the 10th generation. None of their descendants may come into the assembly of Yahweh forever. Why? 
And it says, it says, because they did not come out to meet you with food. So in their history, they did not help the Israelites. And also Balak, the king of the Moabites at that time, he actually employed a prophet to curse the Israelite people. And then not only that, there was also this um, uh, stirring up of a, uh, an inappropriate sexual party. I'm trying to think of how to say that with some kids in the room. <laughs> where there is this thing that they tempted the people of, of Israel into, uh, a very, um, uh, into, a, into a pagan worship service, basically, that involved, that involved their bodies and their hearts and their minds, and it caused a plague, and it caused death, and it caused destruction. And then even before that, the Moabites come from Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. And the reason that the Moabites even exist was because of an incestuous uh, 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 relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And so as Ruth is coming into this place, she is leaving these people behind, but then she is going, she is staying with Naomi, and then she is going and she is moving into this place of Israel. And what do you think people think about her? Do you think she's going to be welcomed with open arms? Do you think they're not going to be like, wait, aren't you a Moabite? Aren't you from Moab? And it says this in the text about four or five times. It specifically says Ruth the Moabite. And so Ruth is making this decision to be loyal to Naomi, to stay with Naomi. And yet she knows, I think in the back of her mind, that if she's going to go anywhere, there's going to need to be some kind of transformation. Because there's not going to be this place where all of a sudden she's welcomed with open arms because of her background. And the really awesome thing about this is that with all the... Uh, all of the sin and the stuff that was in the Moab history. It is through her union with Boaz, who we'll get to know next week a little bit, that we have the son of David come into being. And so where there is this history that needs to be left behind of all of this wickedness, there is the staying of loyalty with Naomi, and then there is going and being like, I'm not going to let my past or my people of my past to find who I am now. And I'm going to follow your God, Naomi, which she says is Yahweh, which is Yahweh. And so she is leaving these things behind. She is staying with Naomi, but then she is going to be transformed. And in our lives, it's easy sometimes to leave things and not be transformed, right? It's a lot easier to just be like, I don't like what's going on in this place at this time. I've given it a day or two. I'm just going to go and leave. And there's a huge difference of the heart between leaving someplace and going someplace. And that's not to say that it's never appropriate to leave something behind, but still, when we are leaving something behind, what are we actually running to? Are we running towards the one true God, or are we running towards something else? How does staying in the place that we are right now in our lives and the way that we interact in our relationships and the way that we do life good? And where do we need to be transformed in the day-to-day -day places? Who or what are you giving your loyalty to? And is that thing or is that person worth it? Because we can give our loyalties to a whole bunch of things, but are they actually worth it. God is working in the subtle details of all of our lives, putting together a narrative that ultimately glorifies him, but we also have these choices to make. And just as Naomi made this, or Ruth made this choice that ended up to the birth of Christ generations later, so we should think about how our choices today 
could affect the generations to come. You can turn to John 5 if you want, or you can just listen to me for a while. So as being the great, 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 whatever, grandson of Ruth, we also get this language in the gospel a little bit. Um, and this is specifically in John chapter 5, starting in verse 14 or 15. And Jesus is being questioned by a whole bunch of, of the religious leaders. They're not honoring him for who he is. And this is what Jesus says to the religious leaders who need to leave behind what they think about who Jesus is, and they need to go and be transformed by following him. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, you know, truly, truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you all will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to those whom he pleases to give it. So there is this reliance, there is this embrace of the father from Jesus that I, he completely relies on what he sees his father doing, what he sees his father saying, he is going to follow in those footsteps. And then in verse 22, it says, Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honored the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And so we can say over and over again that we believe in God and that we follow God, but are we believing in the God of Jesus? And are we following Jesus who perfectly displays God to us? And I love that, that little phrase in there that says, the Father ju judges no one, but entrusts all judgment to Jesus. Because we could see the first part of that verse that says, like, Jesus doesn't do anything without the Father, and it almost seems like a mechanic, uh, like a robot. Like, I can't brush my teeth. When we were in Amplify the other week, we were talking about how um, you should study for tests because just because you don't study for a test and then you pray, hey, God, give me the answers, doesn't mean you're going to get an A on the test. And so this, it's not this machinery that we're talking about, about uh, these robots that we just see somebody doing something and we mimic it. It's that embrace of reliance on that person, which is the Father. And then the Father entrusts us with certain things. To Jesus, he entrusted a ton. He entrusted all judgment to the Son. And so the question I want you to think about today, as you embrace the Father, as you rely on God, in all the small things in your life, what has he entrusted to you? What has the Father entrusted to you as his child? And as you entrust, as you are being entrusted, are you staying connected to Jesus? And are you staying connected to the Father? Or are you going on this autopilot thing where you're going about your day just doing the thing that you might have been entrusted with and yet giving no credence, giving no thought, giving no relational energy to your relationship with God? Jesus does it right every time in his relationship with the Father. And that's why, in part, we lift up his name in worship. That yes, he is the Son of God, but he's also the perfect human being. And if the perfect, sinless Savior relied on his Father, how much more must we rely on God? And as we embrace who the Father is, 
he will entrust us to things within his kingdom. The more we rely on God, the more free we are to become who God creates us to be. So Eugene Peterson says this, and I'll say this in closing. He says, the love of God, yes, God loves us, but his love is passionate and seeks faithful, committed love in return. God does not want tame pets. Just a side note, we're kind of in the pet talk within our family. That is a whole level of parenting I don't, I don't like at all. <laughs> because it's funny, tame pets, that means you have to take care, oh man. Anyway, sorry, that's where my mind went. God does not want tame pets to fondle and to feed. He wants mature, free people who will respond to him in authentic individuality. You know, we're listening to Ruth's story, and Ruth needed to stay to go be transformed. What is your story, and what is God calling you to do right now? For that to happen, there must be honesty and truth. The self must be toppled from its pedestal, meaning that it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. There must be pure hearts and clear intelligence, confession of sin, because we will not do this perfectly, and commitment in faith as we embrace the ways of God and as we are entrusted to the thing that God has given us. So this week, I encourage you to think about those three words, to leave, to stay, and to go. What are the things that you might be tempted to leave that you shouldn't leave? Or what are the things you absolutely must leave? But where are you going? How are you looking to change and create and reframe the culture around you in your personal life and in your household? So let's stand as the, the worship team leads us in one last song. I'm going to pray for us. God, we are tempted by so many things uh, to embrace so many other things in our lives. And it can feel... I can feel guilt and shame at times and almost wanting to uh, run around like, my, like a chicken with my head cut off and being like, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? And so I pray that even as we look to make choices that honor you, we remember that your faithfulness is the most important thing and that your faithfulness to us is what informs our faithfulness to you, God. And I pray that we would be a people that would be able to confess our sins to ourselves and to you and to one another that when we aren't following you, when we are embracing foreign gods, when we are not letting go of the things that we hold on to for power and comfort and security, that we would be able to just be like, no, I need to let go of that. And it's hard and it's difficult. And that's how I knew how to live. Now I need to go to this other place. And God, may we not play uh, this game where we have two lovers, where we have you in Cornerstone on Sunday morning, but then during the week we're actually worshiping another god. Would you purify your people? Would you purify my heart? And would we live out of your grace? Would we live out of obedience to your spirit? And may your spirit guide us and love us and tell us who we are in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.